0: Nathaniel will be preaching tonight, but I'm not Nathaniel I'm just going to be setting up this series before us Before I invite um, Nathaniel up onto the platform And tonight we actually do launch into a a brand new sermon series That we've called Rise of the Kings We're going to be taking a a journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel Now I hope that you received a growth group guide on the way in It's hard to miss them, they're nice and colourful Uh, Our graphic designer, Liam, has done an awesome job um, putting these together. Yeah, woo, go Liam. Um, But we're launching into this series because maybe you remember last year in Term 4, we worked our way through the book of Judges. Now, 1 Samuel continues the story from the book of Judges. Now, you might remember that God had rescued his people, the, the nation of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them to the promised land of Canaan and he had called them to be faithful to him and to obey him. And what we saw in Judges was their repeated failure to do this. The time of the Judges was a time of complete moral chaos and anarchy. And it revealed to us Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. In fact, the book of Judges ended with these words. It says, in those days, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this is what the book of 1 Samuel is all about. Who will be king in Israel? Now, of course, Israel already had a king. God was their king. But they had failed to live under God's rule and reign. And in fact, they asked for a king like all the other nations had that they saw around them. They said, we want a king like that. We want a military king. We, we want a strong king. And this was a rejection, in many ways, of God. And, and bit of a spoiler alert for the rest of the series, this does not go very well for Israel. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, so what? I mean, what relevance does this have for my life? Why do I need to... ...to know about the book of 1 Samuel? I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is... ...with the rise and the demise of the kings... ...God is revealing to us... ...our need... ...for the king of kings... ...the true king... ...Jesus Christ. You see, the book of 1 Samuel matters... ...because it leads us to Jesus. And nothing could be more relevant for us... ...than to know Jesus... ...and to come under the reign and rule... Of King Jesus. See, the truth is, we're all searching for a king. We're all searching for something or someone who will give us significance, security, stability. And we look for this in many different areas and in many different avenues. For some of us, it's in our career. We think if I can just climb high enough, if I can just make enough, then I'll be safe, then I'll be secure, then I'll be significant. For others of us, it's marriage. If I can just find a a romantic partner, then I'll be able to handle everything that life might throw at me. For others of us, it maybe it's our body. If I can just look this way, then life will be good. I mean, whatever it is we look to for our safety and security and significance, that is our king. That is what rules us. And the book of First Samuel is going to reveal to us that if we look to anything other than God for these things, it will lead to disappointment and frustration because only God can give us true security true stability, true significance. And this is why the book of 1 Samuel matters. And this is where we're going in the coming weeks. And Nathaniel has been studying 1 Samuel as part of his studies at Bible College. And so we just thought it would be a great opportunity for him to open up this part of God's word for us tonight. And I'll be taking us through the, the rest of the series as we move forward. So I'm going to pray for us, and then Nathaniel's going to come up and open God's word. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every single part of it speaks your truth to us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have in the coming weeks to to take a a deep dive into this book, this stunning, important book called 1 Samuel. Lord, we pray that we would not just study it to know our Bibles, but we would study it to know you, to be changed by you. Lord, would you lead us to your son, Jesus. Help us in these coming weeks to more and more come under his good reign and rule for our lives. Lord, that's what we want. So that's what we ask for. We humble ourselves before you now and we pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Thanks, Adam. I am Nathaniel, not Adam. It's great to be here with you guys this evening. If you don't know me yet, uh, I am Nathaniel and I have the privilege of working with our young people here at BPCC. Going to be starting off the book of First Samuel with us tonight, but first I've got a question for you. If you think back to your book reading or perhaps movie watching uh, experiences, what's the best opening line you've ever read. Maybe the most distinctive I can think of is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, which comes from Charles Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. Or maybe familiar bedtime stories. I have really great memories of mum and dad reading, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. From The Hobbit. Or... Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, from the line Witch in the Wardrobe. Or maybe an attention grabbing statement. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Written by Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice. Sadly, I've only fulfilling one of those qualities, but I've got treasures in heaven, ladies. That was funny in AM, but you guys love it. (laughs) Now, the book of 1 Samuel begins in a really unexpected way. For a story that's all about the rise of kings, like we just heard, all this grandeur and splendour that we're going to come across, you might expect that it would begin in a palace, the birth of a a young prince, perhaps, or a place of power. But instead, we're going to see how 1 Samuel begins With a humble woman who is struggling to conceive. On the surface, that seems pretty strange, right? But that's actually exactly how God works. God works in unexpected ways and through uncommon means. So today we're going to see how God used one barren woman and her desperate desire for a child to raise up a man who would be a mighty leader of God's people and he would play a vital role in God's salvation story. So we're going to have a look at this passage in sort of two different lights tonight. First, we're going to explore the story of Hannah, the problem, the solution, and the response. We're going to start at the beginning, 1 Samuel 1, verse 1, and work through to chapter 2, 11. And then we're going to come back and look at the broad picture of this passage, beyond the story of one woman and what we can learn from her story, the big picture of how this passage shows us our true king. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up with me to 1 Samuel 1 verse 1 and we'll start by looking at the problem which immediately emerges. There was a certain man from Ramethane, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf and Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now we see straight up, after the really long names, we see the problem emerges. And it's a deep and a painful problem. One of the women, named Penina, has children, but the other, Hannah, does not. She suffers the pain of being childless. Now, despite my mere 22 years now and three or four facial hairs, I have seen I have seen and been touched by the pain of this struggle, but I know that I can still barely imagine the pain a woman feels, a woman who desperately desires children but can't bear them. There's a hardship in this particular struggle. To watch others fall pregnant and give birth and be filled with joy and to feel happy for them, but to be denied that blessing. And I'm sure that there are many of you here this evening who know that far better than I do. And the time that Hannah lived in was particularly challenging to bear this struggle in, because Back then, children were even more important in their culture than they are in our culture today. For a woman, to have children was seen as her primary goal, her main purpose. To be seen, to be barren, to be childless, was to be seen as being virtually useless. Children brought future security. Children continued along the family line. Pension payments and aged care, they, they weren't around. So without children, you would have no one and nothing to care for you in your old age. And in Hannah's situation, this is even harder to bear, as we see in the next few verses. So back to verse 3 there. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice at the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, He would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So we see here that Hannah is not only left barren, not only left without that which she most deeply desires, she's living in a house with a woman who has been given ten children, who has an abundance of that blessing. And this woman is not supportive or empathetic She is cruel and she is provoking, and she delights in lording it over Hannah's misery. And her husband isn't really all that comforting either, right? Like, he does give Hannah a double portion of the offering, sort of a blessing of sorts. But check out the size of his ego there, right? He goes up to his wife. He goes to this wife who's got no children, whose rival provokes her until she's distraught and she won't eat. He goes up to her and he says, It's okay, honey. You've got me. I'm honestly amazed that Elkanah survives past this verse. Like, (laughs) ten points to self-restraint to Hannah. Now for us, our deepest desires probably aren't the same as Hannah's. They're probably not for a barren womb to be opened. But we all do have deep desires, right? That's a part of humanity. We all yearn for something. At some point, we have these things and these things that we want, and at some point... That becomes, like Hannah's heartfelt yearning here, an overpowering desire to have something or some things or some, someone even. So what does that look like for you? What is it that you most deep, deeply, desperately desire? What is it deep inside of you that you might not even consciously think, but somewhere away inside there you just believe, if I could have that one thing, or that one thing, or that one status, or that one person, then I would be happy. That's what I need to make me a content and fulfilled person. What do you most earnestly desire? And then what do we do with those desires? What do we do when our yearnings just seem too much to bear? Well, in the next part of Hannah's story, we see a wise response to that yearning. So back to our passage from verse 10. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now the name Hannah means a woman of grace and we see the biblical Hannah live up to her name in the way that she responds to Penina's cruel words. It seems unfair, right? It seems unfair that a woman like Penina would be given children while Hannah's left barren. It would be reasonable to expect her to go to anger, to go to God in anger, and to vent her frustration, say, "God, why would you do this? Why would you give her children and not me? I'm following you. I've got faith in you. She's mean and she's nasty. Why don't I have kids? That's not fair." You would expect her to shout at him, to rage at him for a bit. That's what I would have done in her situation. Let's, let's be honest. That's what I have done in my situations. But we learn an important lesson from Hannah's attitude here. We see that she goes to God. She brings her pain to God and she cries out to God in anguish. She lays that desire at his feet. She cries out pleading with him for a son. I'm reminded of the opening verses of Psalm 46, which we unpacked together a few weeks ago and which should shape our attitudes when we come to God. It reads, God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So where can we take our challenges, our struggles, our deepest desires? We can take them to the only strong refuge, the only true God. And that's how Hannah, the woman of grace, responded to her anguish. The story continues in verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. This is an example of true prayer. There's a common misconception that true prayer, real prayer, has to be calm and composed. That the more spiritual you are, the more contemplative and serene you'll seem when you're praying. Now, that might be true of some prayer, prayer that comes out of a piece of the heart glorifying God, but what we see here is also true prayer. Prayer which is born out of great anguish and grief and which expresses that. Because prayer is not so much a technique to master as it is pouring out your soul to the Lord. The main image which Jesus gives of prayer is of a child asking their father for help. Now, anyone who's got experience with young children knows that they don't ask for something. When they're serious, when they really want something, they don't ask in a quiet, contemplative sort of way. When a kid really wants something, they're going to let you know and they're going to do it with lots of emotion. The cry of a child is a cry of faith. It reflects the belief that they are speaking to someone who hears them, and who understands them, and who can help them. And so the cry of a desperate prayer is just that, a cry of childlike faith. It arises from the belief that God is a father who is willing and able to answer us. So what creates true prayer? A deep sense of our need and a deep sense of God's care. And as we continue, we see how God answers this prayer. From verse 17, if you're following along in your Bibles. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah, fell, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer his annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfil his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, "'along with a three-year-old bull, "'an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, "'and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. "'When the bull had been sacrificed, "'they brought the boy to Eli, "'and she said to him, "'Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, "'I am the woman who stood here beside you "'praying to the Lord. "'I prayed for this child, "'and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. "'So now I give him back to the Lord "'for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Hannah has been given what she most desperately desired. But in the process, she has found where her true joy is. Her true joy is in God. And so she gives back her yearned for son with joy. And there's a lot to learn from Hannah's attitude here. She's been given by God that which... She most desperately desired, but then she takes this son, her firstborn son, and she gives him back to God to serve at the temple with Eli, the high priest. Now, if you've got toddlers, you probably think this is a genius idea, right? Keep the baby, enjoy all the cuteness until it's big enough to break things, make mess, and then just send him off to the, to the temple, score some faith points, and you're set. We don't, we don't accept three-year-old interns, though, so don't get any ideas from Hannah. But to be serious, though, this would have been particularly hard for Hannah, right? Not just giving away any child, not after God's given her you know, five or six kids, but giving back her firstborn, yearned-for son back to God. Now, my siblings wouldn't agree, but they're not here to disagree, but I reckon that there's just something special about being your parent's firstborn child. There's just something that makes you particularly valuable. But for Hannah to hand over any one of her children, let alone her firstborn son, would have been, I imagine, incredibly difficult. I was speaking to a mum during the week about this passage, talking about what Hannah does here, how she gives her child back to God, and she said that when she considers this, when she thinks about giving her child over as Hannah does here, her heart physically aches a little bit at the thought of it. How could Hannah do this? because she has discovered true happiness and satisfaction. It's not in her child. It's in her God. And this attitude is a really good example for us today. When God blesses us, we have two choices. We can choose to enjoy and use that for ourselves or we can choose to give back to him. Now, this is not just a call to give more financially, to top up the offering bag. Or, No, I'm thinking about... Everything that God has given us, whether it's money or resources or time, skills, ability, relationships, we have all been hugely blessed by God in all sorts of different ways and we can all hear this call to give back to him from what he has blessed us with. Now it's important to note here that I'm not uh, proclaiming and preaching a prosperity gospel of just have faith to God, give God all your stuff and he will bless you financially and make you happy No, the message here is to have faith in Christ, to give your desires over to him and you will find true joy in him. He'll provide you with what you truly need and he'll use you for his glory. Hannah was given more children after this, five more children we learn later in chapter two, but she rejoices in God when she has just the one and she's giving him back to God. Because the point is not that if we trust in God, he'll grant our desires. That's not what the passage is saying. The point is that when we trust in God, he will bring us true joy in relationship with himself. And he will use us to accomplish his purposes. He does so much better than just blindly granting everything that we ask of him. Because from Hannah's story, we see that God uses us to accomplish Not our plans, but his plans. And that's what's highlighted in the final section of our passage in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Hannah's joyful prayer of praise to God. From chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but he who is, she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now that's a bit of a weird song for a new mother to sing, right? I mean, there's breaking of bows, judgment of God. That isn't exactly what you would expect to mark the arrival of a new baby. You generally get like little cute poems on Facebook hannahs That's because the clues which are hidden within Hannah's story are clear within Hannah's song. Hannah's story is a picture of Israel's story and indeed it's a picture of all of our stories because our natural spiritual state is like Hannah's physical state, barren and fruitless. But the movement in Hannah's story is from barren to fruitful. And that's the same movement that's in our story as well. Because in both, God brings life where there is no life. Like Hannah, we are brought out of being dominated by our enemies, crushed and enslaved by sin to joyful victory. And ours is a victory shared with the risen Christ over death itself. And that's pretty cool. Hannah's story and her song are like the table of contents for the book of 1 Samuel because they point us to what God would do for his people all the way through the book. And indeed, all through history, he would show his glory and grace by reversing our fallen state and filling us with life. Hannah's story is told because it's part of a bigger story. Hannah's son Samuel, as we will see in the next couple of weeks, would reestablish God's rule over God's people. He would replace the corrupt priests who were exploiting them and he would deliver Israel from their enemies and bring justice to the land. And in doing that, he both paves the way for the next part of God's salvation story. And he points us forward to Jesus, the ultimate king, the true judge, the perfect prophet and the most high priest. When Mary fell pregnant with Jesus, she sang a song recorded in Luke based heavily on Hannah's song here in 1 Samuel 2. Both of these women rejoice in God's provision, but they're both most focused on what God is going to do for his people through that. What happened to Hannah is the beginning of the story of David's rise to the throne. And what happened to Mary is the fulfilment of this. The beginning of the story of Jesus' rise to his eternal throne. Both tell us that God's king is coming and that when he does, he's going to turn the world upside down. Hannah sings, the Lord brings death and makes a life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Jesus takes those who are dead in sin and gives them new life in his name. Jesus takes those who are weighed down by grief and lifts them up to sit with him in glory. He brings down judgment to those who defy him and he brings grace to those who humbly admit their need for him. And Jesus takes ordinary people, people like you and people like me, people like Hannah and people like Elkanah, And he uses them as his tools in the world to accomplish his plan of salvation. And if that's you, like me, someone who has placed your faith in Jesus, then that's awesome. We have this great, amazing assurance of what God uses us for. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, I would strongly encourage you to consider that, to consider why that is. Because in God we can bring all of our desires, we can place them at His feet, and we can find true joy and true contentment. So if that's you and you're wondering about that, I really encourage you after the service, talk to a friend who's Christian, talk to an elder at the Connection Centre out at the back, talk to one of the staff here, because that's the best decision you can ever make. God is our Heavenly Father. He knows our innermost longings and desires, and He is our only safe refuge. He's the only place we can bring those desires to. When we lay them at his feet, and we will find true joy. So whether you're feeling useless and low at the moment or whether you're seeing how God has used you, the day is coming when God's king will come again. And he's going to turn the world upside down. Or maybe he'll turn it the right way up. And he uses us, his ordinary everyday servants as his tools in the world until that day. And so we can keep on serving, we can keep on giving, we can keep on sacrificing for the kingdom of God, not because we have to build that kingdom, not because we have to earn our way and somehow bring Jesus back like that. No, because he is building his kingdom through us. We are part of his perfect salvation plan. And because our joy is found in God who uses ordinary people like all of us here for his extraordinary plan. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thanks for bringing us here this evening. Thank you that we can come together and worship you, Lord. Thank you that we can come together and hear from your word and be shaped by what you're bringing to us tonight, Lord. We pray that you can, will continue to work in us through your spirit as we go home, as we go about our days, as we go into our weeks, Lord. We pray that you'll Motivate us by a desire to know you better, Lord, that you'll motivate us to bring our desires and our our wants to you, Lord, and to find true joy and true peace and true contentment in you. We pray all this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.